Welcome to the Review Name Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me today on the show, we have Sam. Hello. This is going to be our final Best of 2013 podcast. Uh, it's coming at the beginning of 2014 because Sam and I wanted to cram in as many movies as possible before we finalized our lists, and we wanted to have both of our lists done before we recorded the show this year, so you'll have to excuse us for that. But we're going to talk about the best movies of 2013. Uh, basically, I think what we're going to do, Sam, is run down our lists. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, so we'll get a chance to sort of bounce back and forth between each other's lists a little bit here and there, um, and just talk about some of the movies that we love the most this year. Um, do you have any overarching thoughts you wanted to get to before we just dive in? What a great year it's been. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I feel like we, we say that pretty much every year, but I think you know 2013 what? was especially well, I, good. I think I don't think last year was a particularly strong year. If you remember, you know, Argo was on a lot of top 10 lists. I don't know if Argo would have made my top 10 or top 15 list this year. I mean, it didn't make my top 10 list last year. Um, I don't know if Argo made my top 30 list last year if I had made a list that long. Um, and yeah, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been near the top. I had, a, I had a top 10 and five honorable mentions that didn't fit anywhere near all the movies that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think I did a top 10 list for the site last year. I'd have to look at it again. But I don't know how many of those movies would land on my top 10 list this year. This was a really tough year for me. I didn't do any honorable mentions, which I know you did. But we can, uh, we can talk about that later. Yeah, a couple, a couple of things that hit my honorable mentions list I think are going to pop up on your list, which will give us the chance to talk about it. Sure. But I almost, I mean, I limited myself to five honorable mentions. I almost did a second ten just in honorable mentions because there I, I easily had that many movies and more, actually. I think I had 25 or 30 that were on my list that I thought this is going to be tough to cut. Um, but yes, fantastic year. Why don't we dive in? Because I know we don't want this to be a two-hour podcast, as they sometimes are. Uh Sam, we'll start with you. Why don't we kick off with your number 10 movie of 2013, and we'll just sort of ping back and forth. Sure. My number 10 movie of 2013 was The Spectacular Now, which starred Miles Teller. Um, it was a coming-of-age movie that also turned into a movie about um, a young man who's actually dealing with alcoholism and an absent father. And I mentioned in my post about the movie coming of age movies generally aren't my thing. I'm not so into like teens figuring out who they are. Um, but this happened to be a very good year for coming of age movies. It's it not, was. it's not the only one on my list. Um, and I'm sure it's not the only one we'll talk about, but this just had an amazing performance. Like I said, from miles Teller, who played Sutter or is it, it's, it's Sutter, right? It's Sutter. Yes. And, uh, Shine Woodley, who also was kind of like a breakout here who played his kind of girlfriend, Amy, and their relationship. And it wasn't, it, it was definitely more coming of age than romantic, you know, romantic movie, because I think the relationship kind of played second fiddle to Sutter trying to figure out who he was and dealing with his father, who was played by Kyle Chandler, who also had a very good year in the movies. Um, also, what I really liked about The Spectacular Now Besides Kyle Chandler, it had Andre Royo, Bob Odenkirk. It had it had some uh, heavy uh, television hitters, and I always like yeah. to see that um, come into my movies. Um, and I just thought it was such it was a well directed movie. The chemistry between Teller and Woodley was fantastic. It sold the movie. I think if they didn't work together, I don't think the movie would have worked. So I was really really pleased with this, and this was kind of a surprise for me because, like I said. You know, when I hear coming of age story, I kind of 
brace myself for eye rolling. But this was really enjoyable. Yeah, uh, the spectacular now was on my honorable mentions. Uh, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. <clears throat> the touchstone for me was this movie really reminded me of Say Anything, which is one of my all-time favorite teen movies. And I mean, if you want to call it a, a teen romance, I think the term applies to both. But I think both are also interested in doing a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, the, the relationships in both of them feel fully realized and sort of lived in and more realistic than I think we usually get in, in teen romance movies. Sure. Um, but I thought you're, you're exactly right. Uh, both Teller and Woodley were phenomenal. Um, it was just, it was a really well-developed movie all across the board. I felt like even minor characters, Brie Larson played, uh, Teller's girlfriend at the beginning of the movie and their relationship doesn't really work out obviously. Um, and she was really good at it. So I think, I think it did even the small little characters a lot of justice. Uh, I mean, Bob Odenkirk is barely in the movie and I think actually gets some really good stuff to do. Yeah, absolutely. Bob Odenkirk is kind of the father that Miles doesn't have. Um, and Bob, Bob owns, is it a, it's like a, a shoe store, right? It's like a, 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 a or a haberdashery. Yeah, a haberdashery? I think it's a haberdashery. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to go back and look, but I believe it's a haberdashery. Um, that Miles Teller shows up drunk at a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I think what you see with movies that are about kind of the high school experience, both Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley were believable high schoolers. Sometimes you'll have, you know, real high schoolers who play people who are just way too precocious for me to believe, or they'll get 30-year-old actors to try to play high schoolers, a la many, many television shows. And... There is just uh, such a believability about these people being, you know, 17 or 18 years old. I guess they were probably like seniors. Um, And I think they walk that line really, really well. So this was this was a surprise for me. And it was one when I remember seeing it a few months back. I'm like, this could have a chance to stick around. It wasn't it wasn't one of the, you know, fall award season movies, but. I think it definitely deserves at least an honorable honorable mention like you gave it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like you said, in a year that was surprisingly good for coming of age movies. And I think we're going to talk about a couple more. Um, there was just, I just, it, it's almost hard for me to even talk about it. Um, but it was, there was a naturalism to this that I really enjoyed. And I sure. think, um, I think Taylor and Woodley really, really held that down. Well, um, yeah, I don't know if, if you're going to call this a teen movie, which I think is not really doing it justice, um, it's the best teen movie I've seen in a very, very long time. Yeah. And, and when you get into the territory of, you know, kids dealing with alcoholism and, you know, having their father abandon them, I think those things can tend to be overacted or exaggerated to a point where it doesn't feel real anymore. And I think it's a credit to Miles Teller that, you know, everything felt very, very genuine with him. So I look forward to seeing more from both him and Shailene Woodley. And I think they're both, I've already seen trailers with stuff with both of them in it, both of them together again. So they're doing okay right now. Good for them. Good to you. Good for them. Um, And I think uh, we should probably leave it there on that and move on. Sure. All righty. I'll start with my number 10 then, which was uh, Nebraska, the new Alexander Payne film starring Bruce Dern and Will Forte. Um, we always talk about Alexander Payne as telling stories about aging white men in crisis, um, uh-huh. <laughs> which is basically every single one of his movies with the exception of Citizen Ruth. 
Um, and arguably election, although I think that fits the mold as well. Sure. Matthew um, Broderick's in there. Yeah, and he's, you know, a man in crisis. But this one was, I think, um, one of the more resonant versions of that story. Um, that being said, I, I kind of love all of Alexander Payne's movies, so. But Bruce Stern is just phenomenal in this. He plays uh, Woody, an old man who has decided that he's won a sweepstakes because he's got one of those obviously fake letters telling him he's won a million dollars um, and who sort of forces his son into a road trip, which leads them back to the place where Woody and his wife, played by June Squibb, uh, grew up, and they sort of get involved uh, with the family there again and with various people who were uh, in Woody and his wife's lives when they were much younger and living in the town. Um, it's great as an examination of sort of... Uh, Woody's broken masculinity and sort of his feeling that he's kind of lost in the world and has had all of his agency removed from him. But it's also great, I think, in the way that it looks at uh, the way that we view the Midwest as, as a, a way of life that may be dying in the modern uh, world. Um, a lot of people talk about Alexander Payne in the same way they talk about the Coen brothers, who I imagine we will talk about later, um, as sort of cynics who laugh at their characters. I've never seen that really in either the director's work, but I especially want to talk about Alexander Payne now. And I think he's a really empathetic filmmaker who takes the time to make every one of his characters, even the oh. ones who are more uh, villainous caricatures. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, he makes them all characters that you need to respect, I think. Um, and he gives them all reasons for being the way they are. And I think Nebraska was great at that. Um, I want to highlight one of my favorite scenes in film this year was uh, June Squibb playing uh, Woody's wife at the cemetery. They, they sort of go to visit all of his dead relatives and she starts talking trash on all the past. And it's just, it's it's a moment that I think the movie almost takes over the top and Squibb just sort of nails it and keeps it uh, from going that far. But um, Bruce Dern, phenomenal. Will Forte, really good. Bob Odenkirk, again, um, <laughs> in both of our number 10 films. Yeah, he was also some on really some show called Breaking Bad this year. He's he's doing okay. That, but... Yeah. Um, so yeah, They had our number it. four episode of the year. Yeah our, yeah, our number four episode of the year, which both <laughs> you and I definitely, definitely didn't think it should have been higher. Uh, podcast oh. listeners probably know how bitter you and I are about that already. Um, but Nebraska, Sam, also on your list, correct? Yeah, I had Nebraska a little bit higher than you. I had it at number seven <coughs> for the year. Um, again, like I have such a soft spot for Alexander Payne movies because, you know, I think he's definitely able to find kind of the comedy and the faults of his his main characters, whether it be in Sideways or About Schmidt, you know, he doesn't take them, you know, he understands there are comedic elements to kind of these struggling, sometimes broken people. And I think, I don't think people should confuse that finding comedy and being unsympathetic. I think, like you said, he's very, very sympathetic to these people. And I think if you watch the ends of any of his movies, they kind of all end on this very, very uplifting, um, hopeful note about these men. Um, and I think Bruce Stern delivered one of the best performances of a year from mm-hmm. anybody. And it, it, I think it was an easy role to get that can get lost because he probably has what 50 lines in the movie. Yeah. Um, and I think Will Forte deserves a ton of credit too, because I feel he's kind of he's really the facilitator. He's kind of guiding this movie along, and I just I, I love just this depiction of of family coming together because 
you know, June Squibb will kind of, you know, take the piss out of her husband and her kids. But Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, she kind of defends everybody. And Brewster and Woody's kids, you know, they defend him from relatives who might want some of his money. And I also kind of liked that this is a movie that I, I feel like its story was developed very, very well. Um, because it, you know, it could have been a straight movie about convincing a man about <laughs> that his dream is not alive, but it just, it suddenly became about, you know, going back to your roots and, you know, showing people who you grew up with that you turned out okay, or you turned out even maybe better than them. I also think, uh, Stacey Keach deserves a shout out playing an awesome bad guy, which he always does. Um, yeah, he's, I mean it's almost redundant at this point to say Stacey Keach is fantastic because yeah. <laughs> it feels like a, a Stacey Keach role, but it's, yeah. he's, he's great. Well, how many times um, do we go? Stacey in the ghetto yeah. is fantastic. Yes. That's <laughs> another great scene uh, from this movie and from this year. Um, um, well, we should, we should probably wrap up, sure. but I, I love Nebraska. You love Nebraska. It made both of our top 10 lists. Uh, hooray. Hooray. Why don't we kick over to your number nine? Sure. Uh, my number nine is Francis Ha from Noah Baumbach. <laughs> And it stars Greta Gerwig. And it was also co-written by Greta Gerwig along with Noah. So this was definitely a big collaborative effort on their part. And I think it kind of, you know, she was in uh, Greenberg, which I know we both really enjoyed. And I think she kind of went to another level in this movie. Obviously here she's the main character. Um, But this is a movie that kind of had to win me over because of my preconceived notions. Not so much because of, you know, it is an, it is another coming of age movie, but it's kind of, you know, 20 something woman in New York who's kind of flighty and doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. And I feel like I've seen that and it has Adam driver. So I'm thinking, Oh, is this going to be like girls? And I think one of the main differences this, this has with girls is that Francis is a much better person than anybody on girls. I think she's like a genuinely, positive person who just happens to be lost. Um, and I felt myself, I was totally on board with the journey after a certain point. It, it, it took me, I felt kind of cold to the movie a little bit at the beginning. Her, her kind of flightiness, I think put me at a distance, but then kind of, as I got to know her, I kind of fell in love with this character. And that's a credit to, Gre- I think mostly to Greta Gerwig and, you know, she did have a, she was a co-writer on this movie, so she has a big piece in that. So I think she did a great job with this script. And shockingly, another black and white movie, back to back. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized um, that you're uh, talking about. Francis Hodd did not end up making my list, although it was, I think, if I had done a sixth honorable mention, it probably would have been next, or it definitely would have been in my next five. Um which is interesting because I was more taken with the movie immediately. Um, I really like, it's got sort of a new wave feel to it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Is, is partly due to the black and white and partly due to its sort of elliptical episodic structure. Um, but you're absolutely right when you say this is, this is Gerwig's movie all the way. I mean, I've loved her on a lot of other things. I think she's, she's just sort of a really fun, charming performer. But she needs to nail this character from the beginning for it to work. And I think the reason that, that she resonates as so hopeful and optimistic and you know the reason we're able to deal with her more than you're able to deal with some of the characters on girls i think is because she is 
she she so fully embodies the character. I mean, Frances is sort of flighty, sort of self-centered, and um, not always easy to take. But she's so charming, and uh, she has this bubbliness that I sure. think really carries Frances, even when she's being a very frustrating character. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's to Gerwig's credit that that uh, the movie is as good as it is. Absolutely, you know. It was, it was, there's a good ensemble around her, but this feels like, you know, kind of a tour de force for her. And I think, I think Greta Gerwig has kind of solidified herself in this kind of indie realm and she can care and she can absolutely carry a movie on her own. This shows, um, and she's another, you know, person that I think is going to have really interesting stuff. And I, I, I think she's dating Noah Baumbach, right? They're together. So... I wouldn't be surprised if they just keep making movies together. And I think that's okay. You know, and judging from uh, Greenberg and Francis Ha, that they seem to have like a really good synergy. And I think she kind of captures the energy of this character really well. And I like, I just, I kind of like the energy of this movie throughout it. She's a dancer and there's a lot of just uh, cutaways to her practicing her dance and, and uh, one of my one of my favorite needle drops of all of 2013 with the uh, the use of modern love by David Bowie in the movie. Um, yeah, I think it's just it was a really it was the word that keeps coming to my mind as I'm trying to figure out how I want to talk about Francis Hawes. It was just kind of delightful. Like it was just a, a, a fun, kinetic, happy movie. Um, yeah. And she's just really good in it. <laughs> uh, did you have any final thoughts before we kick on past that? Not really. I, I, I'm just, I'm glad. I think I, I know it's not on your list. Um, but I, I feel like I've seen it in a lot of lists. So I'm kind of glad it's getting, it's getting some, some love. Yeah. And I mean, I thought it was absolutely delightful. It was very close to my list. Um, great movie. Definitely worth anyone's time if you haven't seen it. Um, I guess we'll, we'll move on now to my number nine, uh, which was Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. Um, this is the, I think, the spectacle movie of the year. Um, it was sort of a, a unsurprisingly for Quran, it's, it's a directorial tour de force with a 17-minute opening shot. Um, <laughs> it's it's the movie that did what Avatar was supposed to do for me, which was convince me that 3D can be a viable uh, medium for art. Uh, sure. I didn't care for Avatar. I haven't really cared for any 3D experience that I've had until Gravity, which fortunately I was convinced to see in 3D and completely it, pay, it completely paid off i mean i just want to first i want to talk about this movie as a visceral experience because it's like i left with sweaty palms dilated eyes a beating heart like <laughs> it was it was like a roller coaster ride um which i think has actually been used derisively by a lot of people who didn't like the movie as much as i did but it really was like a, a complete thrill ride for me um beyond that though i think it's getting a lot of unnecessary flack from a script perspective I don't think it's it's amazingly well-written dialogue-wise, but it's actually, I think, a really good resonant story about uh, loss and sort of rebirth, and it's a survival story about someone who chooses to live in a situation where they very easily couldn't have. So I think it, it should get more story credit than it's getting, um, but even, even outside of the story, it's amazingly well-directed, phenomenal cinematography by Emmanuel Lubezki, who I think is maybe the greatest living cinematographer right now. Um, we could debate that, but I think he's phenomenal. And honestly, um, I don't think Sandra Bullock has ever been better than she is in Gravity, which, like, I'm not I a huge Sandra Bullock this, yeah. fan. Uh, what did you say? I loved her in this. She was really yeah, great. She's, I'm not a huge fan of hers, necessarily, always. I think we kind of are derisive of the fact that she's an Oscar winner. 
Although, had she won for this as opposed to the blind side, I don't know that I would complain. Um, she's really, really good in it. So, I mean, I think very well acted, incredibly well directed, uh, incredibly beautiful cinematography. And I think the, the script is getting more, more flack than it necessarily deserves. Basically, I just thought it was a fantastic movie all around. Uh, I, I think Gravity's also on your list, right? Yes, Gravity is higher on my list. Gravity, I have at number three. And I, you know, I felt Gravity, it take, I feel it takes on such, such heavy things, such big ideas. And I think it's largely about just kind of how amazing are human beings. And, I mean, you can see that in this movie just being made, period. But just the idea of space travel and this kind of amazing adventure that, you know... Sandra Bullock is essentially in the universe is a microscopic fleck in the universe and that she goes on this adventure in space is amazing. And you kind of see her emerge from the primordial ooze as she comes out and she is like, she is, she is human, hear her roar. And I feel like the movie was able to capture this. And part of, part of what made it so great was that it needed to be seen in IMAX 3d. It needed to be, this has to be a movie. You know, I think, I think cinemas around are they're always, you know, making commercials going like, You can't watch this on your TV, it's the movies. But I think often, you know, you can watch it on TV. And the movies we've talked about lately are kind of like smaller movies and very intimate movies. This is something that's very, very large, and I think it's kind of what it's kind of what the movie should be, and it's kind of what blockbusters should be. You know, I feel like summer blockbusters there's kind of like a cold distance to it now. But this is something that is completely engrossing, and part of that is the format um, in IMAX and in 3D. But part of that is in just the story, and like you said, the cinematography is just beautiful, and it completely just kind of grabs you by the collar. And you know, the script—you know, the script—I think was kind of maybe the fourth most important thing about this movie. You know, and. I feel like George, I, I really like George Clooney. I think some people have been kind of knocking George Clooney's performance, but I kind of think he he was kind of playing George Clooney if George Clooney somehow became an astronaut. He kind of had yeah. he had this fun dialogue, and I trusted him. I'm like, I will go to the end of the universe with you, George Clooney, as long as I can hear your voice. Well, and I, I, I think one of the sorry, things that the script does that it's not giving getting any credit for, or at least enough credit for is I think it uses the fact that it stars movie stars very well. Um, it sort of uses George Clooney as a characterization and Sandra Bullock as a characterization um, in lieu of doing a lot of character work that it might not otherwise have had to do. Um, sure. Like think, the lifting think, is well, done, you know, it's yeah, exactly. Um, and I think part of the, part of the thing that the script is doing is saying like, you know, these people so they can co- sort of exist as people without us having to do a whole lot of hand waving about them performing. Sure. Um, and it, I think actually let them both give very good performances. Yeah. And most importantly, you know, this was a summer movie and it was exciting. It was really, really exciting that I didn't really see in any other summer movie this year. Um, and I guess in terms of excitement, I don't know the last time I can really say that. I mean, I enjoyed myself in The Avengers, but The Avengers was ultimately just a really, really good superhero movie. But this was the excitement level that you can only get at the movies, which I don't see, think we see that much. Um, but I think it takes someone with such great vision like Alfonso Cuaron or someone like Christopher Nolan, who, you know, they could be just art house filmmakers if they wanted to. They have that ability. But they've 
they've taken it and they've taken to kind of these summer blockbusters and they've elevated it, which I think is really, really uh, important for kind of the future of summer movies and kind of what people expect. I think they, we need people like this who kind of keep the summer movie quality bar raised because, you know, exploding buildings could only get you going for so long. I've kind of become desensitized to it. And this just takes you to outer space and you see earth and it's like perfect and beautiful and kind of unforgettable. So it's, it's tough to beat. And I'm glad, I'm glad that these guys are bringing their talents to the summer. They're not, they're not above it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to say, I don't, I think we could probably do a whole segment on this and I don't want to, I want to move on in a minute, um, sure. but it's, it's almost impossible to not mention all is lost, which is almost a gravity equivalent that also came out this year. Um, and that is also really good and, and worthwhile and also probably a big screen movie, almost by necessity. Um, but I think the reason that gravity trumped all is lost for me. Um, uh, and for a lot of other people on the list I'm seeing, although not all is what you've been talking about, Sam, which is, it's just, it's a capital M movie. Um, yeah. And in a way that, that I walked out of that movie loving movies more than I think I walked out of any other movie with maybe one or two exceptions this year, and we'll get to those a little higher on the list. But it's just, I mean, yeah, you walk out of it and you're like, this is why I go to the movies. Um, and I don't know if there's a much higher compliment I can give to a movie. <laughs> no, that's about um, as good as it gets, I think. Uh, are we ready to do your number eight? Sure. My number eight is The Wolf of Wall Street, the latest entry for Martin Scorsese. Um, you know, this is a movie that's kind of become controversial in that it portrays um, Jordan Belmont, who basically robbed a bunch of people, <laughs> um, <laughs> essentially, millions and millions of dollars in kind of their exploits as they're kind of just bathing in cash, basically. And I just thought this was a really interesting movie because Martin Scorsese's kind of made a career out of gangsters, be it Goodfellas or Casino, and kind of telling their life story. But here he's kind of taking, he's going, here are the criminals I want to focus on now, and these are the criminals who are on Wall Street. And he's also turning kind of a mirror to America and how, you know, these guys can steal tens and tens of millions of dollars and they can be complete fucking assholes and just generally the worst people in the world. And they can basically get away with it scot-free. And I think kind of a lot of the, the criticism of the movie is, well, they're showing them have such a good time, but they're not showing any of the damage they're doing. But I think what Martin Scorsese is assuming is that we kind of understand what they're doing. And I think he's showing us everything we need to know about how horrible and you know, unlawful everything is in this movie. You know, he shows people doing tons and tons of quaaludes and cocaine, and he's not saying, isn't this great, you guys? Isn't cocaine great? Isn't stealing all this money really great? Look how much fun they're having. And that's, I I feel like, you know, I, I can't really sit here and say like, oh, you know, you're watching the movie wrong. But I kind of feel that way. <laughs> um, and it, I think... I, I've also heard it's a three hour movie and a lot of people have said that it felt too long, but I didn't feel, you know, when a three hour movie feels like an hour and a half movie, that means it's paced really well. It is edited really well. Um, the performances are strong. It did not feel like a three hour movie to me. I think it moved incredibly, incredibly well. And I think, uh, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker is probably going to win another Oscar. The editing in this was fucking fantastic as it pretty much always is now in Martin Scorsese movies since she does all of them. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I just I don't I don't get the people who are ripping this. I mean, if Martin Scorsese was to kind of sit down and show us like people crying or people like losing all their money, yeah, I mean, he would it, it would just kind of be unnecessary handholding. Well, um, I think there's there's been a trend in criticism this year. I mean, it's it's always existed, I think, but especially I've seen it this year of people. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this, I think, a couple podcasts ago. People saying, make the art I want you to make. Um, I feel like the, the criticism of Wolf of Wall Street and of a movie I think we'll talk about later on the podcast has been, I think you should have made a movie about the people who were burned by by uh, Jordan Belfort. Um, which is, I mean, I think I think it's just a weird way to criticize a movie. Um, maybe, maybe even an inappropriate one, as I think we sort of talked about before. But definitely... A, a weird way to say, like, you didn't make the movie I wanted to make, and therefore I don't like the movie. Um, the idea that that Scorsese is is celebrating these people or even not criticizing them is... I, I'm going to go further than you and say I think it's a little bit ludicrous, just because, I mean, you have you have things like the sequence in which uh, DiCaprio and Jonah Hill, who I should also say is fantastic in the movie... Um, yeah, absolutely. Which is a weird thing to say, but he is really, really fantastic in the movie. Um but yeah, I mean, you have a scene where they're where they're talking about uh, renting out uh, little people and throwing them at a dartboard, and like, I mean, the throughout the movie you see them treating people as callously as you can possibly imagine, and I think, like, even more so than Casino or Goodfellas, this really to me is is Scorsese's capitalist nightmare, and this is sort of like him looking at uh, the American dream and the way it's sort of mutated in the last ten years or so, and maybe the way it always was. Um, and, and asking us, like, is this what we want? Is this uh, the type of people we are prepared to be? Because this is this is kind of what the system suggests. Um, I mean, you have that phenomenal Matthew McConaughey monologue. Uh, he's in basically one scene of the movie, and he just sort of lays it all on the table. And it's, this is what the system uh, requires of us. You know, you want to make a lot of money? The system will let you make a lot yeah. of money, but you're going to have to do a lot of and, crazy and sometimes terrible things to do it. And I don't know how any, any more clear Martin Scorsese could have made it about these men's disdain for the people that they're supposedly working for, you know, I mean, they literally show them like flipping them off while they're talking to them on the phone and like screaming, like, fuck you. And then there's a whole Matthew McConaughey scene where it's like, it's not about helping them at all. And every, everything's in the text, everything's, everything's in the text of this movie. You know, it's just like, yeah, I think, I think people want to just like, I want to, I think people wanted to see these people punished more and, Martin Scorsese, I think, to prove his point, had to show the truth of what happened. Like, these people get a slap on the wrist. They don't really get punished at all because they're super rich. And people who steal, you know, $1,000, you know, from, like, just, like, shoplifting or just, like, uh, you know, other ways might get punished more than these men who steal millions and millions of dollars. And that's super fucked up. (laughs) And this isn't the the first time Scorsese's done this. I mean... It's almost uh, a mirror of the ending of Goodfellas in a way, which is like, if you're powerful enough, if you're important enough, you can get away with this shit to a certain extent. And I mean, you don't get away with it all the way, but for all the things that these characters have done, you pretty much get away with it. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's saying this is good behavior. That's saying um, they should get away with it. It's saying this is how the world works sometimes, and that yeah. sucks. Um, I don't know. I, I thought The Wolf of Wall Street... It's one of three movies. It's number seven on my list, I should I should say, because otherwise it'll get confusing later. Um, yeah. So slightly higher on my list. It's one of the f- 
couple movies on my list where I, I, I think I used the word masterpiece in my uh, blurb about it, and I, I don't feel ashamed about that, even though it's probably a little hyperbolic and probably a little early to say that. Well, you know, if, it, just, if the director was anybody other than Martin Scorsese, you, you can probably get away with saying that. Yeah, I mean, the movie just <laughs> literally, it's a Scorsese movie starring DiCaprio that I knew was going to be good going in, and it blew me away. I can, uh, I can definitely, I, at least for me, I can say that this is my favorite Leo Scorsese pairing. I think this is maybe my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance of all time. I thought. Oh it was well, phenomenal. it's definitely. I think it's definitely his best performance, um, and I think this is the best of. I guess it's been. This is their third movie they've done together. Uh, more than that, I think. Right. Well, they did the Aviator. They did the Departed. Departed. Uh, Shutter Island. Oh, Shutter Island! I um, was so it's at least four. Yeah. So it's the. Be- I think it's the best. Oh, and of Gangs of New York is five. Oh God, Gangs of New York! Not a fan. So they did a lot of movies together. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, they really <laughs> did. Holy shit. Well, Shutter Island and Gangs of New York are a little bit more forgettable for me, clearly. Clearly. Um, I thought this was absolutely phenomenal. I loved the hell out of it. Um, and yeah, I, I was sitting between two people who were, of course, texting at some point during the movie, and both oh, of them the were worst. saying it was too long when the movie ended. Uh, neither of them were with me, I should point out, because I don't hang out with monsters. Um, <laughs> but they were both walking out of the theater saying this was too long, and I was like, I was apoplectic. It, like... I had heard that criticism of it before, but I couldn't even wrap my head around it. I think it was so amazingly well-paced, and as you said, so phenomenally well-edited. Uh, it was just an amazing movie. I mean, full stop, phenomenal work uh, from Scorsese, from DiCaprio, from everyone around, I think. Um, yeah. Did you have any, any final thoughts? Nope, it was great. And it was, yeah. and it was so, um, you know, another tribute to how good this year, I think, uh, this year was. It's number eight on my list. And it was, yeah. you know, anyway, uh, so we'll bounce to eight on my list sure. now, um, which was mud, uh, Jeff, the Jeff Nichols film from earlier this year that I, I haven't actually been seeing enough love for. And I find deeply depressing. Um, this is sort of a, a modern Tom Sawyer riff, uh, that, that plays around as all of Jeff Nichols films do in a way with masculinity and, um, the way it's all sort of posturing and the things it's covering up. Um, the film is, is ostensibly about uh, Matthew McConaughey's fugitive hiding out on an island, but it's really about um, two kids, Ellis, played by Ty Sheridan, uh, who is also in The Tree of Life and who is just a phenomenal young performer, uh, and his friend Neckbone, played by Jacob Laughlin, who's also really good. Um, and it's about the two of them sort of growing up and learning a little bit about adulthood uh, through their interactions with Mud who they, they originally sort of see as this romanticized outlaw character that they're going to help, and who they learn a little bit more about as things go along. Um, one of the things I love the most... Well, there are a few things I want to highlight. First, I want to highlight what I think the film does that's very interesting with its female characters, which, as I was viewing it, I was like, I think the movie might have a bit of a woman problem, until I realized what it's actually doing is saying that most of the men in the movie have a woman problem. It's, it's really smart about the way that it lets the male characters paint all of the women with uh, the sorts of brushes that movies and men often paint women with, and then sort of pulls the rug out from under each and every one of them uh, with the way that they've been doing that, which is really fascinating. But the film, it really felt more, I think, than almost anything else I saw this year, like, like a novel on the screen. It's really, really intensely detailed. It's really incredibly good at developing characters, even ones that don't have uh, very much screen time. And it, it plays really well with motifs, which is something that I think only only the occasional film nails as well as, as Mud does. So it's just, it was a beautiful, lyrical, um, 
fantastic coming of age stories uh, to fit sort of into the pattern of something that keeps coming up on this podcast. Um, and a movie I think is really not getting enough love. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, it's becoming redundant, but he's, he's phenomenal in it. Uh, Ty Sheridan as Ellis is fantastic. Uh, Michael Shannon is great in the small role. Um, and Sarah Paulson is also phenomenal in it. And she, she got a couple uh, slots on my list this year, actually, and still I think is not working enough or being appreciated enough. It's just a really fantastic movie. And I think Jeff Nichols is, is one of my top directors to watch right now. Um, Sam, did you see Mud? Did you have any thoughts on Mud? I did not see Mud. That was one I wanted to see but missed. It might be on Netflix, right? It's on. Is it on Watch Instantly? I don't know, but if it is, you should all go watch it instantly because it's phenomenal. Um, and Sam, you you among them. It yep. really, it's it's a movie that stuck with me. Um, at one point in the year, it was a it was a favorite for my number one slot, and obviously, it's been a fantastic year and it slipped down a little bit. But it's a really really great movie. Um, I'll just leave it there. Uh, and we've hit my number seven already, but we can kick on over to your number seven, Sam. My number seven was Nebraska, which we already talked about. Oh, perfect. So, so do you want to volley back to you? Uh, oh, well, your number seven is The Wolf of Wall Street, I yeah, see. Yeah, we've talked about both of our number sevens already, so we can jump back to you for your number six. Perfect. My number six is Inside Lewin Davis, the newest Coen Brothers film, which was surprisingly, surprisingly amazing. Or not surprisingly. <laughs> it turns out the Coen Brothers... Just, I think those two crazy kids are going places. Yeah, I think they're going to be just fine. Um, I thought this was a really interesting movie for a number of reasons. One, because um, it kind of, it just, it felt like a mix of so many of their other movies to me. Um, but on the other hand, there was something very distinctly new to it and just kind of the melancholy surrounding the entire movie. I think that's like the word that's been yeah. attached to Inside Lewin Davis and I think rightfully so. I think... Its protagonist is a bit more dreary and um, cynical than I think other characters. Even I think the closest, it's kind of like a mix of Barton Fink and a serious man and other things. And it's kind of all these things, but it's kind of new at the same time. And I think they kind of, they definitely seem to love, you know, this folk music scene that they're covering so much. And Lewin... I think is an interesting character in that he kind of, he clearly loves to perform, but he kind of hates, he hates kind of the grunt work that one needs to do to become successful in the industry. I mean, he's, he's afforded opportunities throughout the film and he either very begrudgingly accepts to do it or just flat out doesn't do it and wants to quit. And, you know, the Coen brothers don't do a lot of quitters in their stories. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you say uh, it's a it's a mixture between Barton Fink and a serious man because I think that's that's fairly dead on. Uh, I should also plug that Inside Lewin Davis is higher on my list at number three. Um, so I guess I loved it way more than you. Clearly, yeah, <laughs> um, I'm a monster. So yeah, you're you're history's greatest monster. Um, but I think uh, one of the things that that is most interesting about this with me is it sort of it takes the uh, a s- sort of similar story structure to a serious man and saps the main character of, of Larry Gopnik's earnestness and just completely turns him into a bitter, cynical character, which almost feels more realistic. It's less of a parable, I think, <laughs> than a serious man. Because uh-huh. this, is, this is someone who's been shit on by the world again and again and again and right. gets angry and bitter about it. Um, and, but I also, you know, I think there's, there's a little bit of O Brother or Arthur, both in the T-Bone Burnett soundtrack sure. uh, in, the, in the 
references to the Odyssey, and there's just, I mean, the Coen brothers take a lot of, of elements and throw them together in this movie, but I think, like you said, it's completely its own thing, which was, is impressive, because it's a Coen brothers movie, and those have, have rhythms and feel, and feelings, and, you know, a repertory that they can sort of return back to, and you have uh, John Goodman here being very good, um, but it does, it feels like a, it's complete, a uh, completely independent thing. It's just a really, a really detailed character study of a guy who's really talented, uh, and it's just not going to make it. Um, and I think, I think it, it harkens back to one of the Coen brothers, uh, pet themes of a sort of cold and uncaring universe, but it does it in a, in a less comical way than we've seen them take it on before. Um, but also perhaps in a less nihilistic way than we've seen in things like No Country for Old Men. Um, well, I think kind of what I found is, I'm not sure if it, I think it's putting a little bit more of the onus on Lewin instead of the universe. Um, because I think kind of the circular nature is just kind of, of the narrative structure mm-hmm. of the movie. I think it's supposed to kind of lend itself to kind of making every, the timeline and everything seem just kind of ambiguous in that I think it's supposed to magnify kind of how Lewin is in this loop of kind of self-loathing and quitting. And they're always, you know, their turns when he could have turned, but he doesn't, you know, or their, their, uh, you know, mistakes that he keeps repeating. And I think, I think there's kind of this, like, maybe he's trapped in this universe, but I think he's not making it. He's not making the changes. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, I don't think that, I think the movie definitely says, you know, cold and uncaring universe. But that's not the point in a way that some of the Coen Brothers other movies. Right. I think okay. I think one of the points here is that Lewin is in part at fault. Um, he's short-sighted. He's stubborn. He's an asshole. Um, and he, like you said, he could make his life better in various different ways at points in the movie, and he chooses not to. Um, and I think you've seen a lot of people say he's unlikable or he's too prickly. And I think I think he, he is, is kind unlikable. of unlikable. <laughs> yeah, he is unlikable, yeah. but I don't. I don't think that makes him unsympathetic, or at least it didn't for me. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things that I think pulls that off, which we would be remiss if we didn't shout out the amazing soundtrack for the movie. Um, and Oscar Isaac is, he's phenomenal as Lewin, but um, I think some of his best moments are when Lewin is performing and you sort of get this window into Lewin's pain and his yearning and all the things that he's not really showing throughout the rest of the movie. Cause he's too busy being an asshole. Um, I think without the music, you you would maybe not have a sympathetic character at all. But when with these uh, few scenes that you get to see him actually perform, I think it it allows you to see Lewin as more of a human. Um, even if I don't think it makes him easier to forgive as a character, I think it makes him more interesting. Yeah, the Coens have a thing for making really interesting characters. Yeah, again, they're good movie makers. They should keep doing this film thing. Yeah, I like that. Um, any final thoughts on Inside Lewin Davis? Uh, that's it. I feel like I'd have m- many more thoughts after seeing it a second time. Yeah, I think uh, this is a movie we both agreed. It's going to benefit, as most Coen Brothers movies do, from a second viewing and probably from a third and fourth, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I felt comfortable placing it very high on my list even after only one viewing. So I imagine it'll it'll enrich itself over time. It's a great movie. Um I guess we'll bounce to my number six now, sure. which I think is is very high on your list, as yours was on mine. Uh, the Act of Killing. Yes. Um, this is uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary that... I, I, the only way I could describe this is it's, it's a documentary that sort of defies reality. There were 
multiple <laughs> times when I was watching this that I was like, this this cannot be real. Yeah. Um, and what's so horrifying about the movie and what's, what I think makes it stick with you for so long after you see it, as it has with me and I think it has with you, um, is that it is real. Um, the, it, the premise of the documentary is that uh, the filmmakers are following Indonesian uh, people who are high in positions of government or respect, um, who were instrumental to the extermination of thousands of quote-unquote communists during a government overthrow in the 60s. Um, and the film allows them to recreate their mass murders as, as they see fit, which is often reflected through uh, their memories of Hollywood gangster films and westerns and things like that. So it's sort, of, it's sort of a commentary on the way we export violence throughout the world. But more than that, I think it's a commentary on like darkness at the soul of humanity. And it really <laughs> is. I mean... This is a this is a movie about as Werner Herzog would say probably. But this is a movie about like uh, the very worst that mankind can do to itself, um, and it is it's it's sickening and it's terrifying and I mean the the society that, that it depicts. Um, I think one of the scenes that I wanted to highlight uh, in a movie that's full of of beautiful, terrifying, horrifying, and like resonant and lasting scenes. I think the thing that stuck with me the most is there's a scene near the film's end where uh, Anwar Congo, who is the main person we follow around, goes on a talk show to discuss the movie he's made of his exploits. And it is the most... It's blistering satire of something that's actually real and occurring. Yeah, what I, like, what, I, what I can understand is, like, how is this, like, a country? Right. You know, like, when he goes on that show and he talks about killing all these people, everyone's like, hooray, hooray. And it's just... I think I actually mentioned in my like my little blurb, and I think you mentioned it too. It's like this is all really, really happening. And then in mine, I think I said something to the effect of, um, "Like, how is this a movie? How, like, how is this yeah. happening? How is it?" And I was amazed about this type of access. And I think something that's interesting what you see in the credits is how many people are credited as anonymous uh, in the making of this movie. Um, I actually had I had the Act of Killing as my number two movie of the year. I had it. I had it pretty solidly as my number one until I saw her at the very end of the year. Spoilers. Um, Spoilers. We will get there. <laughs> yeah, we will get there. Um, but I just I feel like the act of killing is just like it's like a benchmark documentary. I feel like like every oh, it's a game changer. Every like decade or so. I mean, I like I think like the first thing I think of when I th- it's like on the level of uh, the thin blue line. Um, yeah. I mean, this it, is this is an year that for that was very good for documentaries. I think stories we tell, Leviathan, um, Cutie in the Box. There, like, there were several that were were high in consideration for my list, but none of them comes even close to the act of killing. I mean, it's it's yeah. a monumental work of documentary and filmmaking generally. It's it's something that it's one of those movies that like it's slotted in at number six on my list, and I think it's probably sort of arbitrary and it probably should be higher. Um, but it's the sort of movie that's going to stick with me for years and i imagine in a few years when i look back on this list i'll be shocked that it's uh as low as number six it's that good yeah and um and i i think of the thin blue line just because i think the thin blue line kind of broke barriers in that it you know errol morris's style kind of hadn't been seen before in doing the type of reenactments he did with mm-hmm. this real crime and i feel like oppenheimer kind of takes it to this weird new level where he has the subject's actually recreate their own crimes but through their own vision and through kind of this prism of 
Hollywood movies and how they see Hollywood movies and how they perceive violence and how they perceive their own violence and that, and then he has them kind of watch their own movies and see how they react to that. I mean, this, this goes deeper than any, you know, talking head movie could possibly dream of going. I mean, they show them going through the streets and being surrounded by children and people who are, I mean, there are people who are like afraid of them still. I mean, they're, people who don't want to be accused of being a communist because they'll be killed. And there are people who talk about having relatives killed by these men and smiling while telling the story. And it is just, it, it was like, it is, I mean, it was the most shocking movie of the year. And I think it's something, you know, when people put up lists of documentaries and when classes are taught about documentaries, this is something that'll always be on there. I think, I think it is really like a very, very special movie. Yeah, that I think and, everyone I mean, see it. it is it is monumentally important for documentaries, I think, but just monumentally important as a piece of cinema. Um, and I think it's it's part of a titanic leap forward the documentaries took this year. The uh, the other three I mentioned, uh, Stories We Tell, Cutie the Boxer, and Leviathan, all in some ways I think contributed to this and made documentaries more than just the the standard like talking head scrolling text that we are sort of used to. Um, but this is just, yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Very, very terrifying, honestly. <laughs> yes. I mean, you watch, I watched that movie and it's, it's like, it's, it's probably the most traumatized I was walking out of a movie, uh, this year. Although there's another one higher on both of our lists, well, higher on my list, I guess, cause that's number two on yours. Um, that I think was about equally traumatizing. This one hits you harder because you are literally watching the people that did these things, um, and in some in some cases, people who are related to their victims. Um, just yeah, I think I think we can leave it at that. The act of killing, phenomenally powerful movie. Um, and move on to your number five, Sam. Sure, my number five was Blue is the Warmest Color, which is kind of another three-hour movie. It has the three hours and sex of The Wolf of Wall Street with the coming of age of <laughs> all right well not quite but it is it was it was a i think another really impressive movie and i think it kind of has the expansiveness it kind of it kind of like reminded me of the 400 blows i mean kind of that french um sl- like kind of slow paced build just kind of like layering on story and i feel like it, 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 it's a story about um, a girl named Adele who's kind of, you know, it takes her through high school, through, you know, her early career as a teacher. And basically it's her discovering that, you know, she's a lesbian and she has this first like true love. And and it kind of it feels like years. And I mean that in the best way, not in like, oh, this is so slow. way. I actually think you know, the length was not an issue at all. Um, but this seemed like just such a raw depiction of kind of the, the joy and pain that comes with love and relationships. And I, I, and obviously, I mean, a lot of people talk about like the sex scene and that they should, they have like very graphic sex scenes that are very extended, but I think those are often kind of like besides the point, just because, you know, just the performances outside of those, um, between the two leads are just incredible and it it really feels like it spans years. And I mean that again, in the best way, um, the two leads here are really fucking fantastic. I think both of them should be best actress nominees. I know they won't be, but 
Yeah, I think they will probably be roundly ignored by uh, American award ceremonies, and that's insane because I think uh, Adele is is um, one of, if not the best performance of the year. Uh, I mean, in any in any role by any gender, I think she is one of the best performances of, of twenty thirteen. Yeah, and you know, it it just feels like it's just like a very raw movie. This is kind of like about like the deepest, you know, human emotions. And I feel like we can, we'll talk about this a little bit later with her, but I feel like her kind of had this beautiful, you know, it, it just, it blew us warmest color felt more like a documentary say than something like her. And I think her is much more cinematic and I think blue is the warmest color is something that's almost like verite story about love and growing up and kind of the pain that causes. I actually think movies probably have a lot of, at least in terms of talking about love and passion, they probably have some overlap. I think blue is the warmest color kind of gets into society and it society dealing with, you know, someone who's a lesbian and her social standing and being with her family, which is not really what hers about, but, there's a lot going on in this movie and there are two amazing, amazing performances in there. And I think, I think one of the shames is of the sex scenes is that it's kind of all anyone talks about. Cause it's a lesbian sex scene where they're very naked and very having sex. And I think people, I think that might be like what some people only take away from the movie instead of like all the really oh, greatness. Phenomenally, <laughs> phenomenally it works as a character study. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, what did you think? I, I loved Blue's Warmest Color as well. It was one of my honorable mentions. Um, and again, it was probably something that could have been much higher on my list very easily. Um, I, I I don't want to spend too much time on it because we, we should probably move on pretty quickly. But I thought she was phenomenal. And I think I, I, I do want to say on the controversial sex scenes, uh, because we, we tend to be spending at least a few minutes on the controversies of movies we're talking about. Um, one of the things to me, I don't, obviously want to comment on the accuracy of the lesbian sex because, you know, I'm a straight guy who has literally zero experience in uh, having sex as a woman with another woman. Um, so I won't really say whether how realistic those are. But I, I will say that I think um, it worked for me as an expression of Adele's uh, sexual confusion, which I think is, is one of the themes of the movie. She's sort of, she's not sure where she falls on, uh, you know, the Kinsey scale doesn't really come up, but she's not sure exactly uh, how to define her sexuality. And a lot of the movie is about the way that she stumbles and sort of figuring that out uh, and and sort of comes to understand more about herself as she gets older. Um, and I think that the sex scenes actually work really well to exemplify that. Um, so to me, it wasn't a question of, of them being excessively long or excessively anything because they were, uh, you know, this is what sex scenes exist for in movies. They were deeply communicative uh, scenes in the movie. And I think they were instrumental to explaining where Adele was in her, in her character arc. So um, I know they're controversial. I thought they were used very well. And I thought they served a seriously important narrative function, um, but kind of out of the movie. And it's still a phenomenally good movie um, featuring again, two of the best performances of the year. And it's just, it's, it's one of the better coming of age movies in a year full of them. I, w- I would say, even though it wasn't my, my ultimate favorite, it was definitely up there. Um, I guess we should move on um, and talk about my number five now, which was Before Midnight. This is the the third film in the For the Moment trilogy, although it wouldn't surprise me if in uh, nine years we have a fourth movie. Um, 
but following Before Sunrise, which uh, is sort of this this first love scene, first, uh, you know, meeting these two people and sort of watching them fall in love, and Before Sunset, which sort of carries the torch and, and picks up with them nine years later. Before Midnight, um, it's... This is one of the maybe two, I think, yeah. I would say this and, and the Toy Story films are the only two trilogies where every time the movie comes out, I'm like, wow, that's like, that's as good as the other ones. Maybe it's even better. Um, and Before My Midnight is is arguably better than the first two, which I didn't know was possible. Um, directed by Richard Linklater, starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, who the three all co-write the movie. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are, are both really good performers elsewhere, but these are the roles they were born to play, um, and they've been playing them, you know, for longer than they played anything else. Um, you can really tell they live with these characters all the time, and they live inside their skins, and it's easy for them to pick them back up. And you feel like, at times during the movie, you feel like uh, you're just sitting down to dinner with, with some old friends you haven't seen in a while. It's, it's that intimate, and it's that well-realized. But it also, it's a really smart film about the way that love changes over time, and uh, you know, we now find Jesse and Celine in their 40s, uh, and we now find them in a very different relationship situation than we've seen them in before. If you haven't seen the movies or this movie, I won't exactly spoil it, but they're in a very different place, um, and the movie really plays with that very well. It also has one of the uh, best extended scenes of the year uh, involving the two of them uh, in sort of a knockdown dragout fight in a, in a hotel room, which is just incredibly, incredibly well done. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a fantastic movie. It's definitely one of my favorites of the year. Sam, uh, thoughts on Before Midnight? Uh, my thoughts are I haven't seen Before Midnight, and I haven't seen any of the trilogy. So I got to yeah. get on that. I, I've been telling you, I think, for a while. Yes. Um, and, well, I mean, you've got nine years before what I assume will be the next one, because my assumption at this point is every nine years they're going to get together and do this as long as they're all still alive. alive. Yeah. Um, and, hey, if... Like I said, they seem to have bettered themselves every single time. I don't know if anything uh, can top the the final exchange in Before Sunrise, the second movie in the trilogy, which is one of my favorite last lines in movies of all time. Uh, but as a as a as a movie, Before Midnight might actually be better, which is just it's incredible to me. Um, yeah, all three of them are phenomenal. Before Midnight is it's it's a clear next step and a continuation of the series uh, that. Gives you all the things that you kind of wanted based on the first two, and then gives you some things that you didn't know you wanted. Um, it's just phenomenal. Uh, go watch those movies, and why don't we knock o- uh, knock over to your? Are we at your number five? Yes, or we're actually at my number four. Yeah, what was your number five? Did we do? We did that. My already? five was Blue's the warmest color. Okay, yeah, we did fi- your five already. I got lost. We're at your four. Go ahead. My four is Twelve Years a Slave from Steve McQueen, and. Well, I thought Shame was kind of like a great-looking movie. I thought I thought it had some problems. I think 12 Years a Slave is almost perfect. It was deeply moving, deeply upsetting. Um, story of Solomon Northup, who's a free man in the North and is kidnapped and sold into slavery. And I think along with the act of killing. It was one of the most difficult movies to watch this year, but many of the performances were just so, so powerful and kind of, you know, I think it's one of the more unforgettable movies 
that it's not even my number one, I think, is another speaks again to how freaking strong I thought this year was. I think most years, I think a lot of people would have this as number one. Um, this movie is kind of what's subversive about this movie, and I think what's kind of subversive, or not so subversive, but kind of just like kind of horrifying actually about slavery is that like compared to like the Holocaust, you, you, the images of the Holocaust, it's like concentration camps and gray and stone in these horrible camps and pretty much horrible things were happening to slaves, but it was all kind of like beautiful. They were all on these like big, pretty plantations, but like the most horrible things were happening, which makes it like kind of more horrifying. And I think Steve McQueen kind of captured like the beauty of these like plantations, but the ugliness of everything that happened in there. And yeah, it was, it was difficult to watch obviously. But um, I think um, this is the other movie I was talking about when I was talking about the two most brutal movies I saw this year. Um, and I think they're tied together not only in how much they say about the awfulness of what humanity can do to humanity, but also in the way that they're both sort of about the way that that awfulness can become institutional. Um, and I think the difference between most Holocaust movies and, and 12 Years a Slave is this is a, a horrible, heinous crime that was perpetrated over decades to right. millions and millions of people, you know, over centuries, really. But, I mean, in, in, in America, over decades and decades, this was happening. And it became such a part of society that, it, you know, it was easier and easier to look away. Um, I think uh, 12 Years a Slave, for me, by the way, was at number two. Um, so it was, it was higher on my list. Loved, loved this to death. I think um, this is easily the best movie I've ever seen about slavery. Um, but it's more than that. It is, uh, I mean, she would tell you, Jafor, uh, I never pronounced his last name right. Um, but he gives, I think, my favorite performance across the board that I saw this year. Um, but this is a movie just stacked with phenomenal performances. Michael Fassbender is amazing as uh, one of his owners. Um, Lupito Nyong'o is is just phenomenal as another slave. Um this is this is a movie that that is just full of of amazing performances. Beyond that, though, I mean the the screenplay by John Ridley is it's some of the best writing I think uh, I I saw this year. And Steve McQueen, like you said, I've had I've had problems with his previous movies. Um, I think he's he's always done things that are very pretty, and this is very pretty. But this is the first one that I think is is. He fully matches uh, the story of the film with with his style, and it's it's funny. Um, when I saw the movie, you know, it was already uh, one of the front runners for best picture, and and in the conversation. And one of my first thoughts once once I got over, sort of like that was phenomenal, and I'm traumatized. And one of my first thoughts in, in the days after I saw it is, I think it actually might be too good to win best picture. Like, I think <laughs> as a, as a piece of art, as a piece of direction, it is better than the Academy Awards usually uh, awards. I mean, it's one of the best films I saw this year. It it would be uh, the highest film on my list if it wins Best Picture to win Best Picture since I think two thousand seven. So, um, yeah, I I think it's absolutely phenomenal on pretty much every dimension that you can measure a film by. Um, loved it to death. Uh, and also sort of hated it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those movies, like we said, like The Act of Killing, where it's like, it's horrible, brutal, painful. Uh, there were a couple individuals in my screening that actually were wailing with tears at points in the movie, and I I, I didn't think that was an overreaction to what was going on. It's, it's that powerful a movie. It's 
it's that uh, traumatizing in, in certain ways, but it's it's phenomenally well done and it's an amazingly powerful piece of cinema. Um, so, any last thoughts on Twelve Years a Slave? Uh, I think we can move on. All right, we will move on to my number four, which was In the House. Um, this is just it's it's a it's the sort of metatextual. Um, think piece that only uh, French cinema can really do as well as, as it's done here. It's a story of a, <clears throat> a French literature professor at a high school who is sort of disaffected and detached from uh, his job and from teaching, who becomes drawn into the life of a student who he thinks is a talented writer. And the student, all of his stories are about his uh, visits to a friend's middle class house and sort of about that family and what they're doing. And the, the movie very, very quickly becomes a meditation on the, the way that we tell stories and the meaning that we imbue these stories in as uh, the teacher sort of half guides the writing and tries to make his student into a better writer and half sort of indicates that perhaps he should be manipulating events within the house to make them more interesting. Um, this is, it's a, it's a movie that does more with narrative than pretty much anything else I saw this year um, and manages to tell a story about all of these characters in the house um, and the the sort of two intruders into the house in the boy and the teacher that he sort of intellectually brings along. Um, it tells a story about all of them that's larger, a story about stories, the role that stories play in our lives and um, the way that they affect the way that we view the world and the way that they affect the way that we interact with the people. Um, it's beautifully done, amazingly well acted, really kind of suspenseful. Um, and engrossing in a way that very few other movies I saw this year were. It, it, it's sort of a story about the way that we reduce other people in our lives to roles and stories of our own, uh, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and about others, and the way that like sometimes we get caught up in them and sometimes um, that affects the way that we live our lives. It's, it's great, great stuff. Um, Sam, did you see In the House? I did not. Another one. I'm going to add this to your uh, cinematic homework that I'm giving you on the podcast then. Okay. Go watch this movie. It's, it's really, really great stuff. Um, and another movie that I think isn't getting enough love at the, at the end of the year now. So I would recommend it to all of you as well. Um, and I guess we probably don't need to spend any more time on that because we're already going to go long. So why don't we move on to your number three movie of the year, Sam? Well, my number three and number two movie of the year, Gravity was number three and two was The Act of Killing we already talked about. Oh, cool, because we already talked about my number so, three, Inside Lewin Davis, and my number two, 12 Years a Slave. So, so we can, we can finally get to the grand to finale. The grand finale, which is our joint number one, uh, and that is her. So, Sam, why don't you kick us off, and we'll talk about her for a few minutes. Yeah, I think something you brought up earlier, it's like movies that make you love movies, and I think her is kind of, like like you said, it's kind of like the perfect example of that. I just, Spike Jones took a premise that sounds pretty much laughable, a man kind of falling in love with, not kind of, actually falling in love with his computer, his, to be fair, super intelligent computer, um, and kind of seeing that relationship play out. Um, I think in somebody else's hands, it could have been very, it could have been either kind of hokey to completely just stupid and not working. But this you know, he directs this so well and he has such great control of these characters and his script is just perfect. And his script, I think is often poetic. I think this is one of the most beautifully written movies of the year because I think it just, 
it is it often has characters very eloquently speaking about what love is to them and relationships and you know what what is it that people really love about being with somebody else and i think i think this movie just takes this kind of weird you know semi-futuristic concept and it's just kind of this exploration of what is love and why do we love love and I just think it's just like a plain beautiful movie aesthetically and thematically Scarlett Johansson Scarlett Johansson deserves a ton of credit and she should be nominated for best actress just for her voice performance I know again she probably won't be because it's just a voice performance but she was able to capture just so much with just her voice without any physicality that you can, she has to make us believe that someone could actually fall in love with her. And she did it. She absolutely did it. And Joaquin Phoenix, um, who is the lead, uh, he, he just, he, he plays Theodore and he kind of has to sell us on this too, that someone could actually, who's not completely insane could fall in love with a computer and he's just perfect. And he has to do it with Scarlett Johansson, not being right across from him, which I also must be, I can imagine must be an incredible challenge for an actor. So I just think it, it was beautiful to look at. It was such a wonderfully realized version of the not too distant future. It was beautiful to listen to. I think the writing was amazing. I think it had some of the most eloquent writing in any movie this year. And the performances were great. So I just think overall in all of these areas, and I think it it discusses love in interesting and new ways. And I think it's such a well-worn topic for in music in every medium. You know, sometimes you think, well, where could you go with talking about love? But um, I think Spike Jones kind of asks us like, well, what if there's no body? What if it's a machine? What if it's a super intelligent machine? Then we're kind of breaking we're kind of, he's kind of forcing us to break down like, well, what is it real? What is really love? And what is, what is it that really makes us happy about being with someone? So, you know, I think this is brilliant. And I think this is Spike Jones's masterpiece. And I think you can say that without hyperbole. Um, and he's made, he's made some really, really great movies already, but this I think is his masterpiece, which I don't think he'll ever top, frankly. Yeah, honestly, I mean, Spike Jones has never made a movie that wasn't on my top 10 list for its given year. He, he directed one of the movies that was my, on my top 10 list for the last decade, and I think this is probably the best movie he's made yet. And like you said, I, I, I don't know if I, I can definitively say he'll never top it, but it would be really, really hard to top. Um, it's just, it, I mean, from every, from every perspective, from a, from a writing, from a direction, from an acting, uh, even the score, every, every piece of this movie works phenomenally well. Um, I don't know. I'll put it this way. In a year that I think was absolutely phenomenal for movies, I wasn't, you know, I had a lot of things jumbling around on my list and I was like, this is a really great year for movies. I don't know what my number one is, which is a very rare and weird thing for me. Usually it's, oh, this is number one and I can sort of slot things in behind it fairly easily. Um, the moment that I walked out of her, I was like, well, that was my favorite movie that I saw this year. That, I mean, it worked for me on every level. And Walking Phoenix is an actor who I, I haven't always been on the same page with. But between this and, and, and The Master last year, he's become, I think, one of my favorite performers around right now. Uh, it's just an amazing... It's, I, would, I would go as far as to say it's a titanic performance in a movie that you wouldn't think needs one, but absolutely does. Um, yeah. You know, when you, when, you, when you look at this movie in, in the trailers or whatever, you think like, oh, you know, I could probably get by on, on atmosphere, on its sci-fi premise, whatever, whatever. It needed 
Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson to be as good as they were in it, uh, for it to work as well as it does, and they just both knocked it out of the park. Um, yeah, and, and you're right that, it, that I think it finds new ways to talk about love, but I really think uh, as much as, as it's many other things, it really is also a movie about our times, and it, and it I think has a lot of interesting things to say about the way that we deal with technology now and the way that we, the way that that changes the way that we deal with each other. Um, you know, it could, this movie could very easily have been a satire and at, at moments it sort of leans a little bit in that direction with, uh, you know, all the shots of people walking around talking to their computers and not, not, uh, talking much to each other. But I think it's, it's less about the idea of that as a satire and about the way that that's negative. And more about yeah. what it says about us as people. Well, I, yeah, I don't think the movie's particularly interested in condemning us for no. this. Um, I think, you know, and I think many movies that kind of bring in the technology, I mean, if you look at movies like 2001, which, you know, obviously I love 2001, but that's a movie that's like, here is what is kind of scary about technology and depending on technology. I think what Spike Jones recognizes is like, well, this is just like how we're evolving as people. And we're going to still, you know, we're still going to have love in the future. And we're going to have love in the time of robots, which is my novel I'm working on. And <laughs> It's uh, funny, uh, when I wrote a review of, of her, I, I, I think I said love in the time of smartphones yeah. at some point in there. So that sort of, it, <laughs> that phrase jumps out of this movie, I think, very yeah. <laughs> And I, I don't think Spike Jones is really interested in saying, like, this is good, this is bad, this is what love needs to be. You know, I think there's like there's definitely a point where Amy Adams is kind of speaking, I think maybe for Spike Jones, where she says, Well, does it really matter at a certain point? You know, it's like if you're happy and I I, I didn't get the sense that this movie is completely like judging the fact that we're dependent more on technology. I think it's no, just I don't saying think so at all. it's just saying things are different. And that, I think well, I think one of the things that it hit on that um you you too often see people judging, but I, I think one of the things that it hits on very well is how a lot of people respond to loneliness with the way that they interact with their technology and the way that, you know, sometimes people are diving into uh, their smartphones further as a way of reaching out into the world. And I think that's a different way of reaching out than, you know, people from past generations of experience. But I think it's one that I understand, at least, as a possibility. And I think it's one of the things the movie's saying is, like, the way that we approach the world is changing, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And, in fact, it may be a good thing for, for helping people connect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I loved this movie to death. It was my favorite movie of 2013. It was your favorite movie of 2013. Um, I think it's the only one we had at the same spot on our list. Yeah, I think so. Which is fun. Um, we had a lot, yeah, we had a lot of overlap, but we, um, as usual, I think usually we have a lot of overlap and, and in slightly different positions. Um, yeah. but this year, our number one, uh, was the same because I think her was just the best. <laughs> I think we can I definitively agree. say that now, right? Because the two of us agree. Well, I think it's a it's a fact now, because yeah. movies are objective. And, yeah, uh, movies are objective. Um, it is a fact. So <laughs> good day. Next time, you're at, next time you're at a cocktail party, you can say, "Well, objectively, her is the best movie of 2013." Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad we got that cleared up. I feel like this was a productive podcast. Now, I mean, yeah. we're just talking a lot about about what movies we liked, but now that we know that this is a fact, we I think we've done something important here tonight. Um. Any any last thoughts on her before we sort of shut things down? Um, I think it was kind of like the perfect way for me to end this year because it was like such a fucking fantastic movie at the end of such a great, great year. I mean, like you said, you've mentioned that you have uh, five, I think it was five, but you had a, a, a good handful of um, honorable mentions of movies that were very good. And I, I didn't make one for my list, but there were definitely movies I really, really enjoyed that did not make my list that I 
felt bad about cutting. But um, I think this was a really, really great year. And I think it's it might be the best year since 2000, like since the that I can remember. I think it might be better than 2007 because I think I think 2007 had There Will Be Blood and um, No Country. But I think it was like those two and the rest. I think there's like a much better spread. So I think, I mean, I think you could make an argument for 2006, 2007. Um, I think this is without a doubt the best year of the decade so far for movies. Um, of this decade? Is, sure. Well, there haven't been that many years of this decade. Oh, we're almost halfway done. Next year will be the fifth year, right? So. Well, we got to do all of this year and all next year, and then we'll be halfway. So that's a lot yeah, of work right. to do. Well. I'm saying since 2000, since this, the turn of the millennium, I think this has been the best year, I think, off the top of my head. Yeah, that's a that's a bolder statement that I'm willing to go. But this is a pretty goddamn good year for movies. Um, I think you said something to this effect on Twitter, uh, but I'll I'll uh, either sure. reiterate or double down or I don't know, change it, and you can tell me what I got wrong. Um, this is a year for movies that was so good that one of the movies that was almost on my honorable mentions list has been a lot of people's worst films list. Like, yeah, it's well, a year yeah, that's so think... good the bad movies are good. Yeah, I think I I also think like a lot of the movies that I think we both really liked a lot of them kind of like aspire to greatness and, you know, have, have varying levels of success, but I think they're also kind of challenging and they're often kind of weird. And I think people are very, very split on them. And I think just having those movies is kind of a good thing. Cause it's not like, you know, farts on parade, you know, I think much more interesting movies are kind of being considered as least favorites. Like just the idea that like, the ones that people really don't like this year happen to be very, very interesting movies, I think is a good sign. Um, it's not just like five Adam Sandler movies on these lists. Yeah. Although I think there was at least one Adam Sandler movie that should be on yeah. the <laughs> worst films of the year list. Uh, I'm sure Adam Sandler will come out with another movie that will make tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars and he'll be just fine. And then maybe in a couple more years, he'll do another movie that we all like. Yeah, I think time time. maybe like, what is it, once a decade he has to do that? Uh, well, yeah, there, I think there were two in the 2000s. Yeah, uh, I like Punch Drunk Love a whole lot. Um, yeah. I also like I, Funny People. Yeah, okay, so that was both the same decade, so, so every yeah, five did, years, you want to say? Yeah, roughly every five years I think Adam Sandler should do a movie that we all that we all agree is really good. Um, so we're due pretty soon. I think actually 2014 will be the fifth year anniversary of uh, Funny People, I think, so... We should I get a great he, I think he has a movie, movie coming out. I think it's, uh, I guess it's going to be on par with Punch Drunk Love, right? Yeah, clearly it's going to be as good as Punch Drunk Love. What is it, Sam? You can tell us. It's a movie called Blended. Blended? It is with Drew Barrymore, so Ooh. the dream team from Fifty yeah. First Dates, or as I call it, molesting a woman with a mental disorder. <laughs> and the, the premise is, after a blind date, a man and woman find themselves... Stuck together at a resort for families where their attraction grows as their respective kids benefit from the burgeoning relationship. That sounds so, terrible. Yeah, that's definitely going to be as good as Punch Drunk Love. I know it sounds awful, but <laughs> by the law of Adam Sandler yeah. films, it will be a masterpiece. Though he has two other movies on IMDb that don't have release dates. Um, one, one, one literally says, plot kept under wraps, so I, I couldn't really tell you anything about that. But it's directed by... Uh, Thomas McCarthy, who directed Win Win, which I really, really like. So maybe he's gonna. So there you go. That's probably our. our that's Adam th- that's or probably Thomas your McCarthy's good one. Directing and, like and, Grown Ups Three. 
And he's going to be in a Jason Reitman movie, apparently. So Okay, so we are probably due for a good Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> he knows. He's like, I'm going to do five years of shit, and then I'll give you guys something nice. He's like, oh, I'm going to make money for five years, and then I'll, you know, yeah. do a good performance somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I'm glad we got to sort of wrap up our discussion yeah, of, of a great Sandler. year in movies talking about shitty Adam Sandler movies. I think that's appropriate. Um, with that, we should probably shut down the show. Um, shut it down. I'm going to do a few of my standards and say uh, you can follow us on Twitter at VBNames. You can email us at VBNames at gmail.com. You can comment on the site where you can find both Sam and I's top ten lists um, in written form where... I, at least, am usually more eloquent than I am on these things where I think I said the word phenomenal about 45,000 times because I just like what we're talking about. Um, so you can go read those. But since this will... Technically, it's going to be released in 2014 because we're recording in 2014. But I think this shuts down our discussion of 2013 uh, and the best that was 2013. So I just want to say thank you to all of you who've been listening to us for all 2013. Thank you um, for all of you who've been reading us, even if you're not listening. It's a weird thank you, but it'll get to them, I think, through osmosis. And um, hopefully, Ruby Named as a website and as a podcast will keep providing you things worth listening to and reading in the year to come. Um, thanks for sticking around, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>